Welcome to season 11. We are so happy to have you back for the new season. And we are really happy to have fans like Isabel, Daniel, and Betsy supporting our show through our newly released Patreon page. Go visit patreon.com backslash future hindsight to find out how you can join the Future Hindsight Civics Club. For the price of one good caffeinated beverage a month, you'll get early access to our episodes ad-free and hear extra content from our guests on how you can be the best civically engaged citizen possible. We'll even send you a free gift just for signing up early. Go to patreon.com backslash future hindsight right now and join the Future Hindsight Civics Club. If Mila's mom can do it, so can you. We can't wait to see you there. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Eitan Hirsch. He's associate professor in the Department of Political Science and at the Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts University. He researches and teaches about civic participation, U.S. elections, and voting rights. He's the author of Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. I'd been thinking about how we can move from passive preoccupation with politics into real action. So we're doing a whole season on how citizens can build political power and work with other people to influence the government. We'll be covering everything from the endurance of the Tea Party to building a Democratic Party precinct on campus, the role of the Supreme Court in conservative politics, and even modern dictatorships. If you've ever felt powerless and helpless, and you're doom-scrolling on your phone for too many hours at a time, this episode reveals how to build real political power and take effective political action. Politics is about working with other people with some goals and strategies to influence the government. I think a lot of people might not like the direction the country's taking on specific issues or in general, they might want something different. They might want to address an environmental problem, an immigration problem, an economic problem, and politics is the way we solve problems. The problem is that most people who kind of say they care about that and most people who are spending a ton of time thinking about that are just not doing anything. We discuss the relationship between service and politics, the importance of civic engagement, and solving community problems through the politics of empowerment. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So your book is about moving beyond political hobbyism into building political power. How do you define political hobbyism? And what's a common manifestation of that in the United States? Sure. When I think of political hobbyism, I think of all the ways that we spend time thinking about politics or worrying about politics, but not really doing anything beyond satisfying that emotional or intellectual need that we have. So all the time we spend not just reading the news or listening to news, but talking about it, sharing it, commenting on it, being like an amateur pundit, cheerleading for a political side from the couch. 
some token actions like signing an online petition. This is sort of a catch-all term for all the ways that we do politics that aren't real politics. So I think some ways it's easier to define political hobbyism by understanding what politics is. And in my view, politics is about working with other people with some goals and strategies to influence the government. You might try to get people to vote a certain way. You might try to get policymakers to act a certain way. But either way, you are working with others with some goals and some strategies to influence the government. Most people, like 90 or 100% of the time they spend on politics, is not captured by that. It's more like a hobby. So I think this goes without saying, but just to state the obvious, why should we want power? Why do we want political power? I think a lot of people might not like the direction the country is taking on specific issues or in general. They might want something different. They might want to solve some problem, like they might want to address an environmental problem, an immigration problem, an economic problem. And politics is the way we solve problems. The problem is that most people who kind of say they care about that and most people who are spending a ton of time thinking about that are just not doing anything. And I think we also have to worry about who is doing that. So at the very beginning of the book, I give an example about the Ku Klux Klan doing some very concrete actions in 2018. In North Carolina, the Ku Klux Klan was going around offering to help opioid addicts, saying their addiction wasn't their fault and the KKK was there to help them. And I talk about that as a very concrete attempt of a group with some political goals to solve a problem. Now, most people hate the KKK and fearful of the KKK. And I want them to see that this group that they hate and fear is doing something to get one new supporter at a time, one voter at a time. And for many of us, that's a real juxtaposition to what we do, which is like tweeting stuff or sharing something on Facebook or doing really nothing. I think we have to worry not just that we're not able to solve political goals that we think we have, but that in this power vacuum, groups that care more and trying harder are going to gain power. You actually argue that politics is service and you share several powerful examples of everyday people who are civically engaged. My personal favorites from your book are Kiris, Matthias and Haverhill and Nak Vizoki. Yeah in Brighton, because in my mind, they illustrate exactly how politics is service. Let's start with Kiris. She is a 63-year-old Dominican immigrant, and she wields political power through the Latino coalition that meets weekly at her home. How did she amass this power, and how does she use it? Right. So Kiris is a school bus monitor for the special needs school. She's always sort of been interested a little bit in politics, but she really got involved when her daughter, who's in her 30s, decided to run for Congress. And when her daughter decided to run for Congress, Kiris, being a very, very nice and supportive mother, started to get her community on board to go canvassing to vote. And in this town of Haverhill, the Latino community is about 20% of the population, but it's quite diverse. There's the Dominican community, which Kiris is part of, and then there's a Puerto Rican community, which is different. So Kiris did a lot of work to bring this community together to gain support for her daughter's race. But when the race was over, there was this feeling among Kiris and the leaders of this group that they wanted to keep going, that they had a lot of problems to solve. 
And some of those problems are very, very local. One example is that there's an elementary school in her town where the majority of the families are Latino, but there's not a single person at the school who can speak to a parent in Spanish. Really concrete problem. How can they solve it? Can 50 people meet with the school superintendent? They want to talk to the police department about, like, what is the police department doing in terms of interacting with President Trump's immigration department, and how is that relationship working? They also have bigger questions that they want to talk to their member of Congress about, about immigration reform, about affordable housing. And I think that the reason that there's a tie between service and politics for Kiris is because a lot of things they're doing is just like solving these concrete problems. That's the politics of empowerment. That's the politics of helping a community grow and thrive, and also in doing so, engaging in the political process. It's so powerful. When I read that story, I thought, you know, we don't think about politics in this way. The next example, which is actually at the beginning of the book, is really, really amazing with Nock and Brighton. And he came actually as a 65-year-old. This is so remarkable because we think so much of people who are civically engaged right now as young people in college, which of course is totally false. We know that also from the statistics that they don't actually vote. But anyway, so he and his wife were always helping their community and he became the leader in his community association. And he wasn't particularly political until 1996 when the Republican Congress passed a welfare reform bill that would bar legal immigrants from disability benefits and food stamps. So what did he do in response? So what he did in response, and that's right, he didn't do a single thing political until his retirement, which is, I think, an inspiration for many people, especially those who maybe are just approaching retirement or newly retired and (laughs) thinking about how they can be involved. So what he did when he learned that a lot of his community was going to suffer because of this immigration reform bill was a couple things. First, he tried to advocate. You know, he went down to Washington. He went to the press as the sort of the community leader and said, hey, this is really not fair. Many of these people who've come to this country, they come as refugees. They're elderly. They can't speak English. You can't expect them to get a job in their retirement, and they're really going to suffer. But the other thing he did was something extremely concrete. Much of his community, they were eligible to be citizens. They just never took the citizenship test. So he, uh, Nah and his wife, Clara, they started training people to take the citizenship test. They learned the questions that they were going to have to answer. They went through the process. And over a period of a few years, they helped 300 of their neighbors get citizenship. Now, after that, this is where I think the story gets so interesting. Like, it could have just ended there. But what happened was that Nach decided that his community could get more from politics, but also have their voice heard if they were organized politically. And so starting soon after that, every election, Nach and his friends, who he called his lieutenants when they were organizing for votes, they would make a slate of candidates who the community should support, and they would pass out this like a sample ballot with who to vote for. And on election day, they would make sure everyone voted. And pretty soon, this precinct in Brighton, that was really just this retirement home for low-income seniors, mostly Russian and Chinese immigrants, this precinct had two or three times the voting turnout turnout rates of all the precincts around it. And basically everyone voted the same way. And this gave Nach a lot of power. He could call the governor. The governor would call him on his birthday. And it's because he did this really simple thing, which is just organizing his neighbors. Here too, I think we see that politics starts with 
service because the reason that Nah got all those people on board with him in voting is because he had done a lot of work to build trust with them. They respected him. They knew he had their back. He also was just like a, a friendly guy around the building who would help people by taking them on errands. Real politics is so much more like that than it is yelling at people from the other party or who don't support an issue you support. In fact, in general, politics used to be more like that, especially in the Democratic Party. But this all changed with the progressive movement and with calls for transparency. This kind of politicking basically disappeared. Can you tell us a little bit more about that history, that we are now in a time where local politics is almost toothless? Nach actually becomes an interesting character kind of weaved throughout the book because I think many of us, including myself, our first reaction to someone like him is negative, like someone who controls a thousand votes in their neighborhood, someone who's called the Ukrainian boss. This seems like some kind of bad version of politics. I want people to make this transition in their mind from thinking this is some kind of dirty thing to realizing like this is actually what politics is all about. So in the turn of the 20th century, the country started engaging in a bunch of reforms that took power away from local political parties, local machines, local bosses. Part of it, it was just that country was getting big and the cities in particular were getting very big. And local parties like volunteer leaders were not necessarily equipped to deal with all the things that parties were responsible for, like handing out ballots to people. So we had to kind of professionalize the election system. And part of that was taking power away from local political parties. But over the course of the years, in response to some political parties and party machines engaging in fraud, engaging in corruption, being very racist, the country has really said, we don't really want local control over the political process. We don't want local ward bosses. Someone like Nah, he could be corrupt. He could try to extract some personal favor from a politician in a turn from giving him a thousand votes. So we really should do a cleaner form of politics where voters think about like every candidate's policy platform. They vote that way as opposed to voting because someone in their building says, here's who you should vote for. And so right now we're at a place where local political parties have very little power. They do very little. There are very few people like Nah who think about politics as accumulating votes so that you can ask something from the government and know that there's a hundred or a thousand people behind you. And I think what happens there is that we're denying ourselves the opportunity for building support for the things we care about by not doing a politics in the way that Nock did. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Why is hobbyism not good for democracy? First of all, I think it's distinct from power building. I like to say that in hobbyism, we're learning the wrong skills and we're practicing the wrong traits. People who are obsessed with politics are news junkies. They'll learn a lot about national drama or the horse race of a presidential campaign. They have no idea how power works in their community, in their state. They have no idea how they can make an impact. They're just paying attention to big, important things in Washington. They're also practicing the wrong skills. Uh, there are seven people whose stories I tell, organizers in the book, and they all share a kind of skill set that is 
required if you need to get someone to do something that you want them to do, which is they practice empathy, they're kind, they're patient, they're trying to understand where people are coming from and what they need. In political hobbyism, it's just the opposite. Precisely because we're not trying to convince anyone of anything, many of us engage in politics like stubborn children. You know, we're, we're, we'll scream, we'll make our point, we'll demonize our opponents, we'll say that they're idiots or they're evil. That's obviously no way to move people. And in hobbyism, that's not the goal. There's another big problem with hobbyism, which is that it makes politicians behave badly. If you ever watch a presidential debate now or a congressional hearing, you're going to see a lot of politicians basically try to make a viral video of themselves. They will try to say something outrageous or pick a fight or do something that's going to get a reaction. They're looking for attention. They're looking for a $5 donation that someone's going to give because, oh, when that politician screams, it makes me on my couch feel some relief or feel some like connection, and I want to reward that. When we do politics like that, seeking instant gratification, we're incentivizing politicians to act in a way that is not thoughtful is not strategic, that sometimes is inconsistent with their own goals, but gives them a quick million dollars in their campaign budget because they destroyed an opponent on a stage. So true. Although some of it, I have to say, is pretty gratifying if you are partisan, and sometimes <laughs> all of us are, right? So I think we can't help ourselves. It's, it's a human nature. Future Hindsight is back, and so is our fantastic sponsor, Jordan Harbinger. He hosts The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast that interviews consistently fascinating people about the topics that really matter. Jordan's interviews are lively, engaging, and never shy away from hard-hitting issues and themes. If you enjoyed this show, I bet you'll like his too. Just in the last two weeks, he took his listeners inside the mind of an undercover MI6 spy embedded in Al-Qaeda. He also found out what it's like to be wrongly convicted of a crime and learned the economic basics of running a cartel. Whether you're looking to become a more complete person, get inspired at home, or want to be entertained, The Jordan Harbinger Show will keep you engaged from start to finish. Tune in by searching for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. I want to return to this idea of building political power at the local level. What are some ways to bring back sort of stronger political organizing without bringing back the cronyism? In some ways, local politics and state politics, there's so much opportunity because so few people are engaging in it. A lot of people say that they have some issue that they care about. They might say climate change. They might say immigration. They might focus on racial harmony and racism. If you really care about the environment, there's a lot that your state and municipality can do. And very few people are operating in that space. So you really can have an impact there. If you thought something in your area, some housing development was good for the environment, and you showed up with 20 people to a zoning board meeting, it'd be probably the most people that came to a zoning board meeting <laughs> in a long time in your community. But you can do it on your own. And I, a lot of people are doing it on their own. And I think what they're doing is they're shifting in their minds from thinking about politics as something 
that's uh, important to pay attention to, to politics as something where I, as a citizen, can be important. And the way I'm important is by getting other people to come along with me, to turn my one vote into 20 votes or 100 votes by building trust, serving a community so that people come along with me and advocate for something we care about. Yeah, good advice. So what are two things that I could be doing as an everyday citizen right now? If I wanted to play the long game, as we must, we have to play the long game and build power over time. What are the two things that you recommend everybody does? So the first thing is I'd recommend shifting your news consumption. If you're a news junkie and you're spending an hour or two hours a day on the news, but it's all like kind of national focused, I think the number one step is to start paying attention to what's going on in your community. Sometimes that news consumption is going to be like attending a candidate forum or maybe now on Zoom attending a candidate forum. It's going to require a bit of work to understand what the issues are. So that's, I think, thing one. Thing two is... Identify the issues or politicians or political party you care about and start thinking about what could your role be. Do you have deep roots in your neighborhood? Like, you know that there are 100 people in your neighborhood and you know who they are and you know that they basically don't vote on local stuff. Maybe that's your role to move people electorally. Maybe your role is to support an organization from really a, a, like a backseat position. I think a lot of younger people think that they can't be involved because They're not settled yet. There's a, a lot of ways to be involved in community organizations and advocacy organizations where you might not be the leader of the organization because who knows how long you'll stay there. But there's a lot of roles that you can play that are very helpful where you'll learn skills and develop relationships that will carry you on. What is uh, maybe the most unexpected thing that you learned in writing and researching this book about building power? So I would say that I started the book focused on the hobbyism component. And when I started writing that, I learned from one of my research assistants that it was pretty depressing and I needed to do a better job articulating the alternative. What does it mean to actually do real politics? And that's when I started following around these organizers and learning the stories of organizers. I've never kind of been an activist myself, never been from the world of organizers. And I thought I would find it not appealing. Like those people are really different from me. I just can't imagine myself in their shoes because I don't want to do politics because it feels dirty. And I think what I learned when I started spending time with organizers is that I felt like I had a lot more in common with them than I anticipated because they weren't doing the kind of negative, nasty politics that I imagine they were doing something that was closer to community service. These are wonderful people who are working on politics in this very constructive way. So I think that was a surprise that how much I really kind of fell in love with the stories of the people who were doing real politics. Those are all remarkable stories. I really enjoyed every single one of them. There's another one that I liked a lot, which is the story about Drew at Davidson College. There was no formal Democratic committee in his college town, so he created one and became its chair in 2017. Tell us more about what he did and how he built power. 
Yeah, so Drew was a college student here, and he saw actually weaknesses in two groups. He saw that his local college Democrats club, and actually college Democrats clubs across the country, and by the way, college Republican clubs as well, are mostly what he calls insular pizza-eating social clubs. So they kind of stay on campus, they host debates, they talk about politics, they maybe watch a political movie or something like that, and that's about it. And he noticed that around the country, there's also these local town or county party committees that also do not so much. And what he wanted to do was have a long-lasting impact in his community. So he set up a precinct Democratic Party committee, which didn't exist in his town. And he, with the help of some students and some community members, started this extremely robust organization with big monthly meetings and lots of canvassing and fundraising. This is one precinct that they got 1.700 people to attend like a, a meeting of the precinct, which is just like a, a breathtaking number for a precinct anywhere in the country. They do candidate forums for local elections. They do all sorts of activities. And what happened is students who weren't really doing this kind of work off campus started investing in building long-lasting power in their host community. Uh, even though the students are, of course, transient, they use this committee to work on issues like affordable housing and racial equality, issues that were important to them. Meanwhile, the old guard of the town, the folks who are the community members, the homeowners, some of them, of course, resisted. Like, who are these students? They don't really live here. They shouldn't be engaged in this. But many of them realized that their community would be a lot stronger, that their ability to influence state and local and national politics would be a lot better if they could leverage these students. So you have here in Davidson this remarkable camaraderie between students and grown-ups, between young people and older people, that is really just something uh, to marvel at. That's amazing. What is really surprising, I think, about the story is that he built power within the party. And so maybe this is actually a model that can be copied in other places in the country and a way to bridge the divide between service and politicking. I read your article in Politico and how the student group also learned a lot and dove into the community from basically the existing mentors, the people who are already in the town. That's right. And, you know, Davidson, like basically the rest of the country, had this divide. The students, the younger people in general, are more liberal. They were, you know, supporters of Bernie Sanders. The older guard of the town, like um, most older Democrats, were Biden supporters. They're less interested in big structural change as they are in, like, maybe returning to the Obama administration. For the younger people, that's not enough. But what happens in a town like Davidson through a committee like this is that the younger people who are interested in bigger structural issues get to work on those issues in a really concrete way. They get to work on environmental issues or racial equality issues in their own community, and I think get to experience real impact at that level. I think there are older groups all around the country who are just dying like to get young people engaged. Like, what could we possibly do to get high school students and college students engaged? And the answer that Drew and the group in Davidson tells us, which I think is so important, is that you have to let the students be leaders. You know, students, high school students, college students should be on the boards, in the governing committees of civic organizations. And when they're just asked to be grunt workers, to go knock on doors and not have any role in leadership, you shouldn't be surprised if they don't want to do that. 
That's right. Well said. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Uh, that's a good question. I think what makes me hopeful is that people today can see more clearly than in the past that political choices do have life and death consequences for people. For example, with coronavirus, we see that there are governors and legislators of both political parties that are great and of both political parties that are not so great. And we see that not so great leadership really can kill people. And we can see that the choice we make for a president or governor or whether we pay attention to who's in charge of our town is not just like something that is of some interest to people who happen to like politics, but to the rest of us, it's it's not. It's really important. You know, whenever I, I teach my class on U.S. elections every year, I say at the first lecture, I say our election system and our political system is pretty fragile. Increasingly over the last few years, I think a lot more of my students and a lot more people in general understand what I mean by that. And that it requires really active participation. That's not going to require active participation among everyone, the people who are already spending an hour or two a day on politics. They do have time and they just haven't been orienting that time productively. And I'm hoping that I think the crises of the last few years can help inspire people to say, like, I actually do need to take myself more seriously and take my role as a citizen more seriously. Here, here. I couldn't agree more. I hope that the audience is inspired to get engaged and congratulations on your book. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. With all that's going on with COVID, protests, police brutality, stress over schools reopening, it's easy to forget that politics is actually the way we solve problems and that politics is service. The examples of Queris in Haverhill and Nach in Brighton are exemplary of the politics of empowerment and remind us that our active participation is essential to making our political process effective and work for us. If ever there's a time to seize the moment and take our roles as citizens more seriously, it is undoubtedly now. Next week, our guest is Drew Cromer. He built a Democratic Party precinct from scratch in Davidson, North Carolina, while he was still in college. Previously served as the vice chair of the National Council of College Democrats and is currently a PLEO delegate for Vice President Biden. One of the things that we try to do with the uh, statewide College Democrats was show our worth to the state party and other democratic organizations so that they could see us for the value that we could add and would partner in us in investing in college students and investing in their potential. Leading and growing an organization isn't just about recruiting people and getting them involved in what you're doing. It's also about getting other entities, whether they're state parties or power brokers or campaigns to take you seriously, because at the end of the day, you have to create that political power to get other people to buy into what you're doing so that you can grow it even larger. We discuss the value in investing in young people and grooming them to succeed within a party system, the relatively low barrier to building political power, and the enduring benefits of simply showing up. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan.
Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, FutureHindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. Also, please join our Civics Club at Patreon.com backslash FutureHindsight to support independent media and to be a part of the conversation. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.